The bill is passed without objection. A motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The COVID relief bill passes. Democrats approve, Republicans object. Congressman Carlos Jimenez here live on a busy week in Washington. Florida got it right and the lockdown states got it wrong. Countdown to session, changes on the way. South Florida lawmakers headed to Tallahassee are here to frame the debate. They go into the fridge, they'll be the, they'll be the frosted for tomorrow's people. More vaccine supply, more vaccination sites. But now a COVID variant threatens South Florida. We've turned up three variants originating from Brazil. It's all this week, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg, and we begin there with decisions this week that will be hitting home. Heading into the weekend, House Democrats push through what could be the next round of pandemic relief, almost $2 trillion worth, and pretty much unilaterally, despite pushback from Republicans about the components and the costs. House Republicans unanimously voted against that COVID relief bill, including Representative Carlos Jimenez, the Republican from Miami, and he joins us now live to talk about it. Congressman, good morning. Good morning Great to see you. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? We awesome. are well, thank you. Hope you are. Uh, let's begin with your vote against the COVID relief bill early Saturday morning. As you well know, the majority of Americans say they want that relief, they need the money, uh, and yet you voted against it. Why did you? Yeah, because uh, most of the Americans, uh, most Americans would love to have about $450 billion. That is their check that's going to Americans. And I would have no problem in passing something like that. But that's not what happened here. Uh, the under the guise of the COVID relief, bill, only only about 10 percent of this, by the way, really goes to COVID relief. The rest of it uh, goes to other things. Look, I'm going to read you a list of, uh, of what this really goes to. $350 billion dollars will be spent on uh, pension bailouts of states that have misman mismanaged their pensions uh, years before COVID ever, ever came along. You have $86 billion that will go to union uh, bailouts uh, so they can pay for their pensions too. I don't know why the American people have to pay for union, union pensions and bailing them out. There is $100 million that goes to a tunnel in Pelosi's uh, district uh, in Silicon Valley. There is a bridge uh, which which we call Schumer's uh, bridge. But here's the one thing also people don't understand. There's still a trillion dollars yet to be spent from the original COVID package. And so if the Democrats had actually worked with the Republicans, we could have agreed to fund those things that the Americans really like about this COVID relief package, which is the $1,600 additional, which we could have supported. We could have also funded additional money for small businesses and businesses that really suffered during COVID-19. We could have funded money to put uh, money into schools to reopen, but there's about $100 billion that goes to schools in this, uh, in this uh, package that 95% of it won't even be spent until 2022. There's not even a provision that you have to, in order to accept the money, you have to open the schools. And so that's why we voted against it. Okay, understood, it. understood. I have a question about, I've been listening to a, a lot of Republican votes like yourself list those same things up nationwide, I should say, list those same things as onerous that you just mentioned. Is there a way to consider that? I mean, on face value, it has nothing to do with COVID. But if yeah. you look uh, sort of under the surface, could that be considered COVID relief 
job creation to people who need it? For instance, that, that tunnel obviously has nothing to do with COVID, but might it create no. jobs for people who have lost theirs due to COVID? Then put it, put it in transportation and infrastructure. I'm gonna happen to be a member of that committee, put it there and we can fund it there. But this is a payoff to all of the, the people that Nancy Pelosi needs to pay, pay off. And so look, not one Republican amendment was added. There is no bipartisanship here whatsoever. This is being jammed through by the Democrats because, and, and look, I gotta take my hat off to Nancy Pelosi. She, she uh, cracks the whip, very few Democrats. I think, I think actually in this bill was the first time the Democrats actually, actually rebelled. Two of them actually voted no, along with all the Republicans on the COVID relief package. Every single, every, everything else, no Republican uh, amendments are, are allowed in. This is all, well, we're just gonna put it through and we don't care what you guys, this is not the spirit of unity. This is not the spirit of bipartisanship. I was, look, like I said, I could support portions of this bill. I can, all right? But when you put in 1.9, look, $2 trillion additional, um, and most of it is uh, with, for stuff that has nothing to do with COVID-19, I think that's a travesty. And then who's gonna pay for it? Our children and our grandchildren, our debt continues to rise. And eventually we're gonna get to the point where we can't fund operational necessities like defense and other things and, and some of the entitlement programs because of the debt that we're gonna to have to pay. I think Democrats answer to that I've heard is rolling back corporate tax cuts, just throwing that out there. But I think to your yeah, point- well, the listen, Hey Glenna, go, go ahead and do that. But you know, when they roll back the corporate, corporate tax rate, we got more corporations and we increased the economy and we have more people working than ever before, you know? And, you know, record African-American employment and record Hispanic employment and then the COVID-19 hit. If we put the, if we put the uh, additional tax on corporations, they'll, they'll just go out again and, and leave the country. That, that right now would be crazy. But you know what? Maybe that's coming because some of the stuff that I'm seeing coming from, uh, from this administration uh, really doesn't uh, doesn't put uh, Americans. Uh, really Congressman, as as President Trump taught us to say, elections have consequences. President Biden had said all along, the wealthy and big corporations were going to have to pay more if we go from a 22 percent corporate uh, tax to 26 percent. They will pay more, so it's not exactly a surprise. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. They'll leave. Okay. So that's the problem, you know? So we want to incentivize employment here, okay? To get more people working. That's what we need to do. Not disincentivize corporations to go ahead and, um, and outsource, you know, their, their products and their supply chain to some other country. We need that supply chain to come back. Uh, you really think that by adding, by increasing the corporate tax rate, you're gonna be incentivizing corporations to come back to America? I think that, uh, I, look, I doubt it, okay? Maybe you're right, but I don't think so. No, Congressman, I'm not, let me... Oh. I'm not, I'm, excuse me, I'm yeah. not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm simply putting it in a context. I'm not advocating for but it, got, but it's going to happen. Congressman, okay. let, me, uh, let me ask you a question. And, and if you would answer through the lens of your professional career, you were a city administrator, a county policymaker. In this bill, there's specifically to Florida, there's about 10 billion in it for the state broken down into the counties. Has the, has the local component of COVID relief thus far been utilized properly, been accounted for properly? 
if it's accounted for property and if it's really about COVID relief and not about paying debt, uh, accumulated debt on pensions, et cetera, that has nothing to do with COVID-19, that has to do with mismanagement, I don't follow that. I've always said that, too. Look, uh, California has like a $10 billion surplus this year in their budget, and they're going to get $40 billion, okay? Uh, and so uh, where was where is the need to, to put all this money in California? Well, California happens to be a blue state, and so they're going to get, you know, a nice chunk of change that we in Florida are going to have to pay. And then this is what's happening. The, the states with the highest unemployment rates, the states that have really mismanaged this, this pandemic, you know, the worst, are actually going to benefit the most. And the states that have actually done really well, like Florida, you know, are going to end up having to pay, you know, so Florida gets $10 billion, $10 billion out of a $1.9 trillion dollar uh, package. I think we're getting the short end of the stick. Well, I was and actually just ta I was talking about what I really wanted people to hear from you is your expertise as a local administrator. The pandemic money that is already in Florida, already here, already working. I mean, just this week we heard news of the city of Miami is sort of not knowing where a lot of their grocery card money is. How has what we've already gotten, what the what you United States of America has already gotten, is there an issue that you have with how locally it's been administered? Well, I think that you know, look, some localities are going to do a good job. I think when in Miami-Dade County, when I was the mayor, one of the things I made sure, and one of the reasons we want to keep tabs on that money is because if we don't spend that money the right way, the federal the federal government's going to come back and say, hey, you didn't spend it the right way. You have to pay us back. Uh, if Miami doesn't know how they, they, they've spent their money, they're going to have trouble uh, and they're going to have to uh, pay that pay that money back. And so, uh, look, some, some governments do a really good job at it. Some governments don't do a really good job at it. And so it's all, it all really depends on the individual local government and on the individual state government. They're not all the same. Um, and, but that really wasn't, you know, my, my, the reason why I voted against it. I'm going to assume that everybody's going to do a good job. but. There's so much unnecessary uh, money in here, unnecessary spending that has nothing to do with COVID-19, you know. And so they put the COVID-19 relief package. Well, only 10% of it really is COVID-19 relief package. The rest of it, you know, is stuff, uh, you know, to pay off uh, and, uh, and I guess placate uh, the, the, the base, you know, of uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. And again, this all should be done in a bipartisan manner. Uh, in a serious bipartisan manner, give and take. There, you know, the, the elections have consequences. You know, the majority in the House is only about six, six, yeah. uh, six seats, and in the Senate it's 50-50. That would lead you to believe that hey, we're, we need to work together. But right now, everything is right. basically nothing to no to anything that's Republican, and let's go go with whatever we want to do here uh, as Democrats. And I'm willing to work across the aisle. I have already voted. You know, with the Democrats on, on issues that I agree with them on, yeah. but uh, most of the stuff that's coming out is just too, way too uh, way too radical. For me. Okay, Congressman, hold hold on just a minute. We are going to take a brief break, and we'll be back with Com Congressman Carlos Jimenez in just a minute. Welcome back. On the Sunday morning, we are speaking with Representative Carlos Jimenez, a Republican from Miami. Uh, Congressman, another big vote this week that you took 
was on the Equality Act, which would provide new legal protections for the LGBTQ community. You voted against that bill. I know you don't believe in discrimination against gay people, but why did you vote against this? Well, because, you know, the, the, again, this, uh, this was a, a entirely, you know, partisan, you know, Democrat bill that went uh, too far. You know, look, I've been... How a did it go too far? Well, I'll tell you what, because it, it, it uh, eliminates uh, religious protections. And, and so there are people that have certain religious beliefs, and I believe in freedom of religion. And so I don't think that protecting the LGBTQ, you know, uh, community and protecting religious freedom should be mutually exclusive. And so I co-sponsored the Fairness for All Act, okay, which, uh, again, let me read you everything that it does. You know, it repeals DOMA to, to uh, federally define an individual as married if their marriage is valid in the state where it was, uh, it was uh, entered into. There's no discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and employment, public accommodation, housing, credit, jury service, or for recipients of federal financing assistance, all the while protecting religious freedom, exempts churches, places of worship, and religious schools. And so that's the problem. If we could have, if we could have had, again, a bipartisan bill that gave all these the protections that that uh, you know are rightly you know the LGBTQs communities you know rights, but also protects religious freedom, I could have voted for it. Okay, but question, again, question. Again, it, question. it's just you know it, there's no give and take. You know, que question. Um, the religious freedom, in my read of this, does not, it's protected by the First Amendment and also components of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Equality Act does not change anything about religious freedom. So uh, yeah. break, break down for us what specifically changes for, for people to practice their religion as they see fit, including churches because and it including redefines, schools. It redefines what sex is, uh, and so, and then there is no discrimination, you know, based on, on sex, and therefore you can't discriminate also on, you, know, you may not be able to discriminate on abortions and gender transition, even, even if you have religious uh, uh, objections. And so that's part of the problem of this bill. But wouldn't and that so, be part of the Supreme Court ruling? That's a lot better uh, with our act. Uh, but uh, that's not something, again, that, uh, that the Democrats, you know, choose to do. Look, I, I have a solid record here during my time as commissioner and, my, and time as mayor. Uh, you know, uh, Miami-Dade is one of the most progressive in terms of, of uh, the, the protections for, you know, our gay and lesbian, you know, uh, residents here in Miami-Dade. And, uh, you know, so I have a solid record on this. But again, I also believe in religious freedom. And so this, this particular act, okay, I feel puts that in jeopardy. Yeah. Congressman, let's move on to another a topic that is going to be talked about a lot in the months to come. You and I did a Zoom interview on Friday about it. The Homestead Detention Center, which had, you know, over a thousand teenage unaccompanied migrants and then closed in uh, 2019. It appears it's going to be reopened again. Your predecessor in Congress, Debbie Mukherjee Powell, uh, was a harsh critic of that uh, facility, said it was inhumane, cold, uh, not rel well run. You visited it when you were the mayor and said you thought it was okay, it was acceptable. So are you okay with reopening that center as long as the children are well treated? Yes, I am. Um, and it would be hypocritical of me now because it's a different administration running the, the shelter. So, look, I asked the Biden administration who's running it. I want to make sure that it's run, you know, the right way. 
when I visited that that shelter, you know, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw nothing there that made me ashamed to be an American. The kids were being taught English. They were they had uh, good accommodations. They were well supervised. They had uh, good meals. The one thing that I that I you know would have suggested to the federal government, they could have done a better job in the playing fields. You know where they were playing basketball and football and and uh, and soccer and uh, the kids you know were playing you know kind of dirt 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 kind of uh, uh, fields and all that which I didn't you know like but all that you know being all that aside I thought I thought that the, the the facility was being run you know well and the kids were being treated well and I you know I separated myself from the group and I can speak Spanish obviously and I went to you know you know you, four or five you know you spoke I know you spoke to the kids let, let, let me ask you one follow-up here. Uh, that facility, for a while during it was while well, it was open during the Trump administration, was run by a private contractor named Caliburn. They really came under a lot of criticism, and there apparently was some sexual abuse going on at the facility. It was secretive. We never really learned about it. Uh, if Caliburn is a candidate for the contract, would you support them? If uh, if those allegations were found to be true. Then I would say no, okay. But uh, I'm not sure of all those allegations. You know, there's always allegations of everything. Were the allegations, you know, uh, deemed to be true? Uh, again, what I saw there, there were the kids were well supervised. The kids were happy. Uh, the kids were being were being taught English, and there was a, a really good group of uh, uh, people that were calling around the country, try to find, um, you know, sponsors for these kids, doing the best they could for these kids. If that's the same kind of facility, I want to see the same and even better treatment for for those uh, children, uh, and then I would have no problem with it. I also want to make sure that there is an adequate hurricane evacuation uh, plan for if a hurricane is on its way, how where are these children going to be taken to, um, so that uh, they're well taken care of. Uh, again, I would have no problem. So if it does open up, I expect to to ins do another inspection myself again and make sure that uh, everything is uh, is running the way it should be. You know, the reason why there is this telegraphing of this shelter, detention shelter, opening again is because of uh, these reports of a surge at the border, President Biden really undoing many of the policies that President Trump has done on immigration. And so I know that, especially for our community, this is going to be, immigration is going to be once and again a huge topic. And what are your ideas Congressman, who comes from an immigration community, of, of how to do a welcoming um, and all-embracing immigration policy and yet not telegraph that there are not consequences for illegal border crossings, et cetera. Look, I think uh, the, the first thing that has to happen in order to, to get a comprehensive immigration plan is you have to secure the border. Uh, you, you do have to secure the border. Number two, those, those that are here already and have been here for some time, there has to be a way to get them, you know, to come out of the shadows, uh, give them a work permit. So, yeah, there's about 11 million undocumented. That's that's the figure that I hear all the time that are here. And so, you know, let's get them out of the shadows, give them a work permit. And in terms of citizenship, uh, my idea, you know, maybe a little bit more di different. I, I think that those that are here, uh, they don't literally have to go back to their country of origin. Just say, look, go to go to the back of the line of that country of origin. Uh, uh, that we have a you know quota system for these countries that are here illegally. I don't think it's right that they should jump those that are trying to get here legally. But if they get to that number, uh, you know, while they're staying here and they can stay here, then you know they can become yeah. citizens. Yeah. And I think uh, that that's something I think we can all agree on. You know, yeah. Congressman, very briefly, Senator Menendez 
and other Democrats in the in Congress have introduced an immigration reform bill, a big sweeping bill. Would you support that? Depends again what what's in it. You know. Um, well, it provides uh, I, a path to citizenship you, for support. those 11 million people. I'll tell, tell you what I would support. And I, and, and I think there may be some members of my party that may not be able to, uh, don't agree with me, you know, I, but it doesn't matter to me. I represent the people of Florida 26, and I also have to, you know, uh, do what I think is, is, uh, is right. So I've got to take a look at the bill and see, you know, those things that are, I think, look, we need to get, get, get the 11 undocumented, you know, out of the shadow, give them a, a right to work. Uh, we need to protect the dreamers. Uh, but we also need to secure the border. All right, that's the, one of the first things we have to do. Because if you don't secure the border, then we're never going to solve this problem. You know, secure the border and then solve the problem of the of the undocumented that are here that have been part of our society for a long time, that have been productive members of our society for the most part. You know, uh, you know, give them a right to work and let, let them uh, you know have have dignity in their life. Congressman Carlos Jimenez, always great to have you with us. Thanks so much, Congressman. Thanks very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, up next, we are just days away from the start of the legislative session in Tallahassee, and two major Florida state senators are going to be with us in a minute to preview the session from different perspectives. legislature officially begins its annual session on Tuesday, though lawmakers have been working for months in committee uh, meetings on new bills. They are faced with a big budget shortfall, about $2 billion, and a state economy reeling from the pandemic. And then there are several controversial bills championed by the governor. Here to talk about it all are State Senator Perry Thurston, Democrat from Fort Lauderdale, and State Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez, a Republican from South Miami-Dade. Good morning. Who is, in fact, on her way to Tallahassee. She is driving up there and joins us from her car. Senator, thank you so much for stopping and joining us this morning. This could be the best live location we've had yet. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, it's an honor to be with you all this morning. This was the only way I could make it happen. So here we are. I love well, it. We, love we it. are grateful. And Perry Thurston, thank you as well. Uh, Senator Thurston, let me begin with you. Let's talk about, you know, the bill the governor is championing to uh, overhaul the state election system after one of the most successful, cleanest, best elections in Florida history. He wants to change it. Is this a, a solution in search of a problem? It, it's a solution. And, and, and good morning, uh, Glenna and, and Mike. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I happen to thank my location right here in front of the Civil Rights Hall of Fame uh, in Tallahassee's capital is one of the best locations. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. This is the best segment yet. <laughs> but I don't think that... This is just a uh, solution in search of a problem. I think this is a direct attempt to, uh, it, it's political. It, we had 44.8 million people who voted by mail with no problem in an election that was deemed praised by leadership uh, of the House, the Senate, and the governor. So the fact that we're attempting to change that system is voter suppression. 
voter suppression at its worst, and it's a continuation of what we see in Tallahassee. Anna Maria Rodriguez, I'd like you to address that as well. From your perspective, um, there's so much that you all will be deciding, mostly under the shadow of what COVID has done to this state. Why this? Why now? After a gold standard election that the governor ran, really? Well, I think what the governor is trying to avoid in the future is uh, eliminating the possibility of, of, of fraud or ballot harvesting. Uh, we saw at the state just north of us, you know, in uh, Georgia, where they just decided, you know, blanketly to mail ballots to every single registered voter. Uh, and I think we want to avoid, you know, something like that. Uh, where in the, by the way, in the state of Florida, we have two weeks of early voting um, where everybody can vote you know, 12 hours a day from 7 to 7 on election day. Um, and so, you know, it's not that we, our, our state doesn't have this. We, we have plenty of options for people to vote. Uh, but there are people that, in, in obviously, in some instances, people pass away, people move. Uh, and what happens is uh, if your uh, absentee ballot is on the rolls, uh, your request for a ballot, rather, uh, and you don't and, and you've moved or, or the person passes away. We want to make sure that people in those situations do not receive ballots and then opens it up for the possibility of another individual yeah. voting for that person. Well, I, I think that would be almost impossible to happen. But let me ask you this. The way it stands now, uh, somebody who wants to vote by mail makes the request to their elections department and they are allowed to vote by mail. They get the ballots for two consecutive election cycles. What the governor is asking is that it be reduced to one election at a time. Now, what's the sense in that? Do you support that? Well, the reality is that there's about a thousand people moving to Florida per day and uh, people move around, um, you know, from one place to another. And so, um, you know, a lot can change with two election cycles. So I think limiting it to one election cycle um, is the prudent thing to do. Um, I, I don't anything wrong with that. If people want to elect to um, uh, ask for it in the next cycle, they can do so. There's nothing that prevents them from doing that. Perry Thurston, what's, yes. wrong, what's wrong with having tight election rules? Why is this a partisan subject? And doesn't everyone have the very same ability, whether early voting or requesting a ballot, doesn't everyone have that same ability to vote fairly easily in Florida? There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a tight election process. But when you indicate to people that they've got their ballots and they're going to receive the vote by mail for two consecutive years, and you come back and change that, that's done specifically to cause a problem, confusion. And if you say, well, what's wrong with it? I would say ask all of the election supervisors across the state of Florida who oppose this, and this is additional work for them. And quite frankly, there's nothing wrong here. There is no, the, the question shouldn't be why not. The question should be why. Why are we doing this? If we had 4.8 million in a great election, we're going to speculate that there may be problems in the future and therefore we're going to do this. We've got too many problems here in the state of Florida for this bill to be having any movement right now. Yeah, Senator, yeah. Rod Senator Rodriguez, let me move on to yet a another bill that you and your colleagues, you and Senator Thurston and your other 38 senators, 120 House members are going to debate. And that is a, uh, a shield 
for long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and any other business that had a COVID-related issue uh, protect them from lawsuits. Why should a long-term care facility that was negligent not be, why should some family member not be able to sue them? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I think the idea here is uh, to protect the small businesses who um, have, you know, opened their doors, who want to work, who want to serve Floridians uh, from being uh, sued unnecessarily. Um, Long-term care facilities in Florida have taken extreme precautions to care uh, for our elderly. And so um, I think in, in I don't think Florida is a good example of what you just said. I think on the contrary, we've done, we've gone above and beyond with our elderly in long-term care facilities to make sure that these facilities remain COVID free. Uh, and so this bill, what, what it really does is protect small businesses from being unnecessarily uh, sued for, for this type of uh, situation. Well, I, yeah, I understand. And I believe that there are in the vicinity, there were about 10,000 people uh, in long-term care facilities, nursing homes in the state of Florida who did die from COVID. And there's no exact proof that, you know, it was gross negligence that caused their death. But we do know of instances where nursing homes were, were careless in allowing people in, vendors, other people early on in the pandemic. I mean, why shouldn't they be subject to, to a lawsuit? Well, again, you know, I think that, um, you know, most businesses took the, the, the necessary precautions to protect uh, their their um, customers and in this case their their patients um, it, it, I would look at it more on a case-by-case -case basis of course there are bad actors in every business uh, including in healthcare, and so those people need to be held accountable without question however the vast majority of uh, healthcare facilities long-term care centers and and businesses in general want to do the right thing and have done and, and taken the necessary precautions to make sure that their facilities um, are safe and COVID free we are going to take a quick break. Senator Thurston, you have a bill, I know, to make uh, what you are all about to do more transparent and more involving for uh, Floridians as a whole. Interesting idea. We will talk all about that when we come right back. Stay tuned. We are back with Senator Terry Thurston, from Democrat from Broward, and Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez, Republican from Miami-Dade, talking as much as we can about all things going on in Tallahassee. Senator Thurston, you have a bill that I think could be the silver lining, if there is one, of a pandemic. And that is to let everyone in the state participate in what you all are about to do, all of the sausage making in Tallahassee, via <laughs> electronics, via Zoom, via Skype, why is there pushback? Uh, we, we talked about this, so, uh, so I already know that there's been pushback. Why do you think there's pushback on something that could make state government so transparent? Glenna, two things. The first thing I want to say is this. With regards to uh, the last bill that we talked about, nursing homes, you know, we're not opposed to some type of amendment, which I actually propose to say, let's go, let's not give the protection to those who have not taken the necessary precautions. That amendment was rejected by the leadership here in the Florida Senate. So I would ask your listeners to follow that closely as we move forward. Now, the pushback on this silver lining, you know, we have an opportunity, and I've proposed eight locations across the state of Florida 
where we can remotely have these hearings and have our constituents look at this legislation that we're dealing with. It is some very serious draconian style legislation that people need to know about. The pushback comes from the fact that there really isn't a desire to have true transparency. We're not dealing with government by the sunshine. We're dealing with government in the closet. Okay, Anna Maria Rodriguez, that was kind of a shot across the bow. Do you want to you want to <laughs> respond to that? No, you know, I think uh, obviously we, you know we live in a democracy. Senator Thurston is uh, entitled to his opinion. I, I see it from a different perspective, and uh, I, again, I feel like Florida. Uh, has done such an amazing job with our long-term care facilities and nursing homes. And, um, you know, again, uh, I'll repeat what I said earlier. You know, there are instances where, you know, there are bad actors and people do not uh, perhaps do things as they should, but uh, the vast majority have, have done so in, in the best way possible to serve our, our elderly population. What, what about what about the Senator Thurston's assertion that your party, who controls Tallahassee at the moment, does not want government in the sunshine? does not want people to participate. Well, actually, that's not the case. Um, as Senator Thurston knows, we are trying to keep people safe and we are trying to avoid having uh, COVID spread um, throughout our, our state capital. Um, I, I believe he was asserting the fact that our, you know, our capital uh, is closed and that we're not allowing uh, people into the building. And so what we're doing is people are testifying remotely for, for um for the, the, the different committee meetings and the different, uh, when they testify, they have to go to the civic center. Uh, and so uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's a way of keeping ourselves safe and keeping the public safe uh, and not uh, contaminating you know, the Capitol and making sure that, and by the way, we get tested on a weekly basis um, in, the, in our state Capitol. We get tested every Monday uh, when we get to Tallahassee. Then I have no problem with that. And my proposal is that the same thing we're doing at the Civic Center, we can do in seven, eight counties across the state. And we can have individuals actually participating. If you look at who's coming in and testifying, clearly everyone has a right to. But sometimes it's not any intelligent questions being asked. They're not affected by it. But if we had just eight sites, Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County, Daytona, Orlando, Tampa, Gainesville, and Jacksonville. I can assure you, you would get um, true sunshine. And there's no reason we can't in this day and age. The IT departments, we have colleges and universities. The same testimony we're receiving from the Civic Center, my constituents who are geographically uh, uh, in France, as well as Senator Rodriguez's constituents who have to drive eight hours to get here would also be able to get their point across and then and input on this uh, legislation that we're dealing with. All right. Well, we have a, just a couple of minutes more left. I want to move on to another big bill. Senator Thurston, you were there in the Civil Rights Museum. Uh, you certainly remember, I remember as a young man, the civil rights marches of the 1960s and the laws that were the result of those marches. Most of them were by nonviolent demonstrators. You know, then after Alien Gonzalez was taken, Cuban Americans took to the streets and they demonstrated. Um, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, there were demonstrations on the streets. And the result of that has been House Bill 1, which is basically an anti-riot bill, would limit the right of people to demonstrate. Senator Thurston, uh, what's your take on this and why do you oppose it? 
Well, I, I uphold it wholeheartedly, as do my community, and as do the black and brown uh, citizens of this state. This, the, this is, as you say, specifically designed to affect the black, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. When I look at the individuals behind me who actually fought and died for the civil rights, they were looked at as protesters. They were looked at as demonstrators. But it was because of their demonstration that I get to sit here on an equal basis with you all today. It was because of the demonstrators in the women's movement that Senator Rodriguez and uh, uh, Glenna, you get to participate in this process. It is those type of demonstrations that has made our country much stronger, much better. And if we're yeah. chilling oh, the oh, rights oh, of yeah. people. Perry, hold on just a minute. Before we finish, I want to give Senator Rodriguez a chance to say why you do, if you support HB1, why do you? So uh, this bill, basically what it does, is it aims to deter violence. Uh, you know, Florida did very well uh, throughout the last year. Uh, not just with COVID, but in terms of um, the, the protests that we saw throughout the country. And part of the reason why we did so well is because we are a, a state of laws. Uh, people follow the laws, and we want people to demonstrate. We want people to peacefully protest, but we also don't want people damaging other people's properties and committing crimes. So what this bill really does is uh, it deters people from committing crimes and, again, destroying other people's property unnecessarily. Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez, Senator Perry Thurston, we could have done this for four more hours. We appreciate your time. <laughs> thank and you your so much. Amazing live backdrops each. <laughs> and uh, thanks again. Good luck, thank you. Thanks for thank you. All right, the vaccine supply is about to get a big boost here. Yet there are still skeptics, including. Well, finally, a bit of uh, good news. There is a new weapon in the fight against COVID, the single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The FDA gave Johnson & Johnson the go for that vaccine. And this week, Broward Health and Miami-Dade's Jackson Health System also began vaccinating people under 65 with certain medical conditions. A lot happened this week. Still, there are skeptics, even among medical workers. And that is where we want to begin with Martha Baker, founding nurse manager of the Trauma Intensive Care Unit at Jackson and president of SEIU Local 1991. That's a union that represents about 5,000 nurses nurses and doctors and healthcare workers at Jackson. Hey, Martha, good afternoon. Good morning. How afternoon. are you? Very good. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, when do you expect to get that uh, in the Jackson Health System and begin administ administering it? Yeah, well, I, you know, our big problem has been getting supply. Obviously, you know, it, we book our appointments in about 15 minutes, I hear, 12 wow. minutes to 15 minutes. So. Um, uh, supply has been the challenge, but uh, you know I, we've been getting Pfizer and we'll get Johnson and Johnson and and I think they're all good. And you know our challenge as the nurses and doctors at Jackson is to you know get everybody vaccinated that we can, get all these shots in in the arms as fast as possible, and uh, you know teaming up with Mr. McGoy and his team, I think Jackson uh, has been doing a great job. And I hear so many community members complimenting Jackson on the the smooth process. There, there has, uh, to your point, it, there has been a, a really short time when all the distributors learn how much they're going to get from week to week. Uh, governor seems to say that that's easing up because there's a lot more supply available now. But 
really, I'd love to hear your perspective on after all of this time and, and so many people in Florida who have been vaccinated successfully, especially people who are medical professionals, what is the skepticism there? Mm -hmm. Well, we've gotten about, you know, Jackson has what, almost 13,000 employees and about 97% of our docs took the shot, about 67% of our nurses. It tapers down a little bit when you get to the um, service and technical workers, but uh, we're finding we have conversations with people and uh, you know, you kind of explain to them the risk and the benefits and obviously when you remind people that uh, any kind of comorbidity you know could put you in the hospital and even hundreds of thousands of people have died you know <clears throat> and it's a shame and i think when you actually have that one-on-one -on -one conversation we've had caregivers say yeah you know good point the shot so i think there's i think people wanted to see but more and more we're finding people are taking the shot and uh, we're Credible, you know, influences nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals at Jackson, yeah. you know, to really work with our community leaders to, you know, get everybody a shot and whatever communication we can do to encourage everyone that, you know, consider, you know, the risk and the benefits. I think it's, uh, you know, it should hopefully be uh, unanimous that everyone will take the shot eventually. I think people are hesitant though, and uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know diversity at Jackson and people have different uh, pockets of reasons, but uh, hopefully with time, and I think it's been very safe so far, the evidence shows how safe it is. I think we're, we're optimistic. We want to touch everybody and, and give them the shot. Have yeah. you had the shot? Yes, I did. I yeah. got it back in December. As soon as healthcare workers could get it, right. I got it. Martha, let me ask you about uh, the emotional toll that caring for patients with COVID takes on you and your colleagues frontline medical workers. I mean, having to hold up a cell phone so that a patient can have a FaceTime conversation to say goodbye to loved ones, if that is even possible. Uh, I mean, this is really so demanding. It's almost inconceivable to us non-medical people that you do this. How, how severe is the toll on you and other healthcare workers? Well, the, the stress when I talk to, we've been doing like three Zooms a week with about 100 members at a time, just talking to them and listening to them about their uh, frustrations. And thank God Jackson's done a great job of keeping the PPE up. Everyone's had the supplies they need to stay safe. But the real uh, heart-wrenching thing is, you know, you, you were all wearing masks and covered up and, you know, the usual contact you have with another human being, you, you can smile or you can you know, yeah. see them differently with all this mass. It's hard and people are really in tears a lot. And I'm afraid we're gonna see once COVID is even gone, just the the de-stressing uh, our, our members are gonna need. Um, it's amazing how many people have told stories, nurses at the bedside and uh, one nurse got floated to a COVID unit and she met a patient and four hours later he died and she was holding his hand and oh. she was crying with, she just, you know, you just don't know what else to do, but you know, the really, really proud moment is nobody's running away from this. They're running to these patients and doing whatever they can. They have one nurse they call the FaceTime nurse because she just goes around wow. on light duty and helps connect with patients. Well, Martha, um, we, we, we thank her, we thank you, we thank everyone at the Jackson Health System. You've done a really terrific job. Thank you so much. Great to have your perspective. Appreciate you being with us.
Uh, thank you so much for letting us share this moment. Of Appreciate it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us, for closing out February with us. And remember, we're online all the time at local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.